I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Matthew Waldman, who's the founder of Nuka, a futurist, a designer, an educator, and an uh, artistic genius. Uh, <laughs> well, at least that's what your friends tell me. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's awesome of them. <laughs> They're Thank very you. nice friends of yours, yes. Matt. Uh, it's actually great being here. You know, we, we had quite a bit of fun earlier uh, looking over your urban vinyls and uh, toys that reminded me of the ones I should have kept in their boxes as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought those Corgi uh, and Meccano cars would ever be worth anything. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting the whole collector's market thing. But you should only buy things because you enjoy them, not because you think that they'll be worth something someday. That, that, that's a very good Japanese aesthetic, too. Yes. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm looking at your wonderful watches here in, in front of me, and I guess what really strikes me, uh, which really makes these watches quite unique, is not so much their design, but their underlying philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it took me a while to realize that I had no idea how to tell time on, on it because it wasn't a normal watch. But then when I looked closely, I realized it's actually completely intuitive how you actually tell time. Exactly. I was um, really struck. I started doing uh, interface and web design before the dot-com bubble in the mid-90s. And uh, it was a time period where the um, you couldn't hire an information architect. I don't even think the term existed. No. And, there were uh, no standards of design then. We, we didn't know yeah, what the web should look like. Exactly. So when I was struggling with that, I realized quite early on that uh, it wasn't about how a website looked that made it um, good design. It was actually how intuitive it was uh, in terms of a process uh, and guiding a, a person to go through a, a desired process. Right. And I don't think it needs to be ugly. I don't think e- you know eBay or Amazon needs to be as ugly as it still is. But in terms of design, it's very good design because it really, um, people know what to do. You know, they don't need to read instructions. They don't need to, they don't need hinting. Um, so I tried to retrain myself. My, up until that point, my design experience was very much based on the aesthetics of design, like what can I create that's going to win an award, what's going to be in this annual or this hmm. art director's club. And I realized that if I'm going to focus on interactive design and web, that it's, it has to be about process. And in doing that, it, it really brought me back to just challenging myself about every interface in my life. And, uh, and I think I probably was one of the first uh, designers that didn't see the distinction between the screen and the physical world. I mean, I was very inspired by Velcro on shoes, for example. Like, I thought, well, when I was a kid, if my shoes were untied when I was four or five years old, I had to find an adult to help me. And then you now children have Velcro and they have this, it really gives them this freedom of mobility and a sense of independence. It's actually, it's a very profound uh, design, the change that some, it's not even that, it's not that that person who came up with putting Velcro on the shoes, they did not invent shoes and they didn't invent Velcro, but they, someone had the idea of putting Velcro sh- straps on shoes. So, so for awesome. you, design became more of a very utilitarian uh elimination of friction and obstacles to getting something done well not only it's not the elimination it's actually the uh, creating a process Uh, you want someone to uh, behave a certain way and the design should um, 
create that pathway without being pedantic or without having without instruction. You should you know you you know and you know how to use. You, when, if you're a four-year-old and you're given a pair of shoes with laces, you don't know what to do. Right. If you're a four-year-old given given a pair of shoes with Velcro, you can figure it out. And I guess this goes to your logic of how weird it is that we have to teach a child how to tell time. Exactly. That's that's what I was getting to. So when I when I remember telling time, learning how to tell time in first grade and how difficult it was for a lot of kids, I started analyzing as an adult. Well, why is it difficult? Why do we just have to memorize it? Um, by rote, and it's because it's base 12 math. Like if I asked you even now to multiply seven times four in base 12, I don't think you could do it, you know? <laughs> uh, but you could, you could know that, oh, well, you know, it's, it's uh, four o'clock, seven hours from now, what time it is. So people are trained to do this uh, addition and subtraction in base 12, but not beyond that. Hmm. And it really inspired me to think, um, I was actually inspired by a book by Michio Kaku uh, called Hyperspace. Hmm. Um, and he had a, uh, a chapter in it where he was talking about how all his critics were saying that his theories were bullshit because he couldn't test them. And he, in this chapter, he says, well, listen, no one doubts that the sun is made of hydrogen. No one's been there and taken a sample, and no one's going to argue with you and tell you that it's not hydrogen, that we have all these uh, sciences that people are taught as real. And they're, they're, they're not. And the example that he gave of was geometry. He said that everyone in school learns Euclidean geometry, but if you learn the formula for the area of a triangle, it works only on a flat surface. He says if you draw it on a basketball, the same equation doesn't work anymore. So this, I was, it just got my whole, reignited <laughs> my brain. And I, was, I thought, well, what are, what are other systems that need to be challenged? Because there's a Riemian geometry, um, or Riemian, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that the equation for the area of a square or the area of a circle or triangle works on flat and curved surfaces. So it's not that that math doesn't exist. It's that someone decided that everyone's too stupid to learn it. Right. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm covering like so many topics. No, no. Like all in one <laughs> brain fart. But... Um, when I started then going back to this whole process, uh, my, my design studio and my design process of, of switching from aesthetics to, to process, um, and also visual language and universal language, even everything up until that point, when you're, when you're designing a logo for a company, we started talking about process and function, but it's also about a, a function set is emotion. Like design should also, if it's not, uh, engendering a certain process is also should create a certain emotion or feeling so I everything came together with doing Nuka because I it really struck me that fashion is this incredibly rich um, visual language it's a and it encompasses form language so hmm. it's not just graphic design that and and, and you know, graphic design and logos and people can talk about iconography and representing concepts and icons but concepts, once you open it up to 3D and 4D with a form language, it becomes this incredibly rich language. And uh, you could stop me at any point. But uh, when I started, when I, going back to the whole the linguistics of it, I do remember um, always talking about, back to just basic language, when you tell people that 
well, not tell people, try to have a discussion that we live on a planet where one species, we should speak one language. I always got into arguments with people saying, well, you're American and you think everyone should speak English. And that was never my, uh, you, you know. You believe in Esperanto? No, Esper Esperanto <laughs> would be the same mistake as saying that it should be English. Right. It's like it's... Uh, but, but French is okay. I mean, the, no, French, even, the, the French are still trying to make fr uh, French the world's universal language. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous as well. <laughs> um, so I, I found it very frustrating that I want to have a discussion about the need for having a universal language. And I never say that it should be English or it should be this or Esperanto or anything. Just have a pure discussion about universal language. And I realized, and this is even before Nuka, that no one's able to have this discussion. No. Everyone gets emotional about it. No one can have an intelligent discussion about it. Because it's about culture, not communication. Well, my whole thing, um, and I'm very, very uh, confident about this uh, understanding, communication is about concepts. And language is a tool. So when you get into this argument with people, and I've had this with everyone, people tell me, well, we have a word in Italian that you don't have in English. Okay, so on a purely like mathematical level, I could say, well, we have a word in English that you don't have in Italian. Yes. So that doesn't mean that we can't have a universal language. It just means that this is the reality of the situation. But I always challenge them. I said, what is this word? And they tell me the word. I said, what does it mean? And they explain the word to me in English. It's and usually I, something less than salubrious, right? Well, but uh, <laughs> there, there's, there's, I have quite a few uh, fun words I could come up with. But whenever someone does that, whatever the language is, I say, well, you just told me what that word means in English. So you cannot say that you cannot communicate a concept in English. It's just in, in Italian, it's one word. And in English, it's a sentence. And there are single words in English that in Italian are a sentence. So this is not a valid argument. But this, is, this has become, I think, more of a pronounced issue now that we live in such a global world because of the internet. Exactly. I mean, you, you even have versions of Skype now that kind of work like uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Babelfish, you know, which do live translation. Uh, and I can only imagine what they do with translating these mysterious Italian words. Well, or I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not bragging. I speak Japanese fluently. I, I mean, it's I, I understand. I'm not like someone that only speaks one language saying you should all speak my language. So my point really is, is that people would always think that that was the motivation yeah. for talking about universal language. When uh, what I really realize is the ethos of Nuka is universal language. And I can tell that story without ever arguing. But, but this is, I mean, having an idea of time being more universal is more mm -hmm. mechanistic. You know, you're not getting into such a controversial area about culture, values, and food, which usually people get very upset well, about. Well, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be uh, a controversy for anyone. It's, uh, if you want to communicate, you want to communicate. It, it should be independent of the language you're communicating. And yet even in. something as basic as time zones is very political. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think just recently North Korea decided to create their own time zone. Yeah, to like shift it like a half an uh, hour. And if you think about power, uh, power and time has always been connected. You know, powerful people have always tried to influence time zones or the way we tell time. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's kind of a strong connection between time and power. This is true. But then, and that's also the other trap that I fell into because my first product was a watch. I'm the time guy. But, uh, but it's fine because there are so many different, you know, time is a universal, it is universal. Do you, do you remember when Swatch tried to create internet time? 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, they, they had the hundred beats, and of course, I mean that was a terrible failure because people they had to have beat converters. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it, conceptually it was interesting. They're just not they were just weren't the right brand for, I think, uh, you know their their brand is so based on pop culture and uh, it's a little bit too complex. So. Well, well, what are other things you know besides time? Do you think that a more universal approach could change the way that we, uh, I guess, think about things in our life? Well, again, it goes back to language. Um, it's the linguistics. If you can, isn't emoji a kind of form of universal? It is. Language? It, yeah, it's amazing. It's. I remember I did a, a talk at Japan Society a couple of years ago. Um, we had done a collaboration with Sanrio and Hello Kitty, and people thought it was off-brand. Um, and I had to explain to people that no, it's uh, it's actually on-brand. Everything that I do with my design is to communicate either a set of emotions or a complex concept um, very, very simply with the, with the least amount of, of visual information as possible. And Hello Kitty, um, it's very minimal in the amount of lines. It's not a complex illustration, but it communicates quite universally um, what, what kawaii, what cuteness is. Yeah. And if you had to describe what is cuteness, it, it could take you, you know, between 10 minutes and an hour. You talk about, oh, well, you know, babies are cute because they have big eyes and, and uh, kittens are cute because of, you know, you, you can describe what cute is. Without getting close to the kind of the wabi-sabi of cuteness. <laughs> well, but it, the thing is, it, it's, an, it's an abstract concept. Yeah. And uh, Hello Kitty, just the face of Hello Kitty communicates that concept universally uh, and transculturally, and it's just amazing. And it does exactly what I've done with Nuka, whether it's uh, the linguistics of, of the visual time that I have on my watches or even how the, the belt works or some of the other uh, conceptual projects that I've done. So to me, there's a, there was a, a great synergy with, with that. And that's really, um, you know, I think a very powerful, I think, you know, art is a powerful visual language, like you said, emojis. But uh, it really goes back to, like, I want, I think that really powerful design and also very powerful branding is, is something that's rooted in the linguistics of it. And, that that uh, doesn't explain the Hello Kitty vibrator, though. Well, no, that's just licensing. That's, uh, that's, that's just making money. That's capitalism. So. But, but, but do you see something like when you look at um, how communication has changed among young people, mm -hmm. and it's not just emoji, it's the way that they're utilizing language in a more fluid way. Do you see that as an evolution of linguistics, or do you see it as a devolution of, of, of meaning in communication? Well, it is, it is very, very complicated. Um, and I don't think we know where it's going, but I'm a bit of an optimist. I'm just excited to see what the new paradigm will be. You know, we're, we're in this interstitial period where we, uh, where kids, they're, they're not sitting and reading books. So I have two visions, one that's optimistic and one that's dystopian. Well, maybe not so dystopian, but I think that we're either going to bifurcate into two stratas of society where um, you know, people that still read and are, and are bicultural in both online communication and traditional communications, or we're going to uh, face a world where there's a, a whole, like you mentioned, a whole new paradigm for communication. And I do think it's an, an evolution. It's uh, right. Um, but uh, you know, in the past, we've had bifurcations of language, like high and low German or mm -hmm. you know, English, and whatever they seem to speak in, <laughs> in more north of London. Yeah. Uh, but that was generally class-driven, you know, rather than generational-driven. But we're, we might we might have. Uh, 
And that's going back to, uh, I didn't really get too deep into the whole ethos of, of uh, universal language and why I'm so passionate about it. But I think a lot of the class distinctions, that's why I said it's either going to become more bifurcated because it's, uh, it's not going to be um, democratic. You know, people who don't uh, find a way to, you know, because there's a part of it that there's a lack, uh, a continuing lack of social interaction with, with the younger generation. Mm. And so is that going to become like the matrix where you have, which is an extreme example, where you have one class of people that are literally underground because they're just always in their room and in their devices. It's, it's more like Morlocks then. Yeah, like, right. and they're Morlocks, or, or yeah. you could take the Metropolis model where they live underground and the beautiful people live above ground. It's very possible that that could happen. Yeah. But I really think that uh, the media is, and the governments, are not doing a good job of of sensing these changes and actually doing things that could actually improve a situation. Well, I mean, uh, I remember going to school and that we were still taught cursive. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the... Uh, and you sort of wonder how many elements of the education system are worth keeping, not just for the sake of antiquity, but because of the impact they have on our structure of our minds. And how many are just, you know, destined for the scrap heap of history? Well, this, this is what's quite interesting. And I think it's, it's more about, um, you know, I think kids should still be taught cursive. I do. I mean, it's a shocking when I see the handwriting of 20-somethings. It's, you, I know I said I'm an optimist, but you also have to look at what is the worst case scenario. If you go so far in the direction that everything goes digital, then you have, just by definition, you, have the you still have the digital divide. I mean, optimistically, you know, the third world and the first world, all the, that's going to be blurred and there aren't going to be those boundaries and everyone's going to have access uh, to digital culture and to the internet. But at the moment, that's just simply not the case. So if you have generations of kids that uh, don't know how uh, to build things with their hands and don't know how to write uh, intelligibly with a pen and a pencil, what if there is, like, not even talking about a war, what if there's, like, some kind of, you know, an asteroid or a sunspot activity and then all the digital assets are Don't, don't tell me Facebook's going to go down. Like, something like that. <laughs> it's like, then you have to ask yourself, what's, what's going to happen with that generation if it really does go so far in that direction, you know? You know... I think the design perspective is becoming more important because when you look at so many of the applications that have kind of come to the fore lately, uh, the sharing economy, Uber, Airbnb, in a sense they're less platforms than uh, applications that have innovated around experiences. Yes. Uh, so that you know the technology is actually not important at all. In many cases, they're actually leveraging other people's technology. Oh yes, the technology has become commoditized. Yeah. So so this idea of innovating around experience, uh, what? What do you think is what is the future of that, and like where are the kind of new disruptions coming? Is it really just tapping into things that touch us as human beings, or is there, is there another element here? Well, I think uh, I mean just my my personal opinion is that, um, and this is an economic. There's an economic struggle. Struggle. There's a geopolitical struggle. Uh, the current economic system is still, in a large part, built on. Uh, Commodities, and of course, that's not going to go away, and, and on physical product, and so there's going to, there's still going to be more disruption in, in that space, and 
I think the real, where you're going to see more innovation and, and more value being created is in biotech. You right. know, I think that we've seen such a convergence uh, in physical objects of literally so many things that were in our homes when we were kids are now in your pocket. So you're, and people are really enjoying experiences more. And eventually technology is going to, and, you, and you, we started talking about, we didn't get into wearables, but for wearables to really evolve, they're really going to be not wearables, but implantables or right. bioprogrammables. And um, I really think that that, I mean, that's obviously the future, but we, we can't ignore this interstitial period where there has to be this uh, interface between the, the mind, body, and the physical world. But, but it's also, we, do, we don't really know what we don't know. Uh, it's like when you tell people that there's it's going to be a faster processor, that they think, well, does this mean we're going to get faster email or, uh, you know, uh, quicker updates on social networks? They don't actually have a frame of reference of a world in which you have an implant. Uh, they, well, they, they, yeah. they don't have any kind of experience set to be able to say, this is a, a more interesting way I could live my life as a result of these changes. Oh, but I think people do have that. I think anyone who has played with any virtual reality, of course, not like five years ago, but now, like the, if you can uh, appreciate that ev eventually virtual reality has utility, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people think it doesn't, but I think you and I can agree that it does. Um, the hardware is actually a barrier. You know, to have to rely on hardware to have virtual reality experiences right. is, to me, is an interstitial technology. Right. So you see, you see wearables as a step to actually the disappearance of hardware. Exactly. Right. And that, that makes total sense. Yeah. Because uh, then it's actually not about the technology at all. Exactly. It, it is all about the experience. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, when people talk about, uh, again, like if we want to talk about wearables in terms of like my practice, I feel that the failure of the current wearables are that it's purely an extension of the phone. And of course, it, it, there's a regulatory environment that has to change. That's I, I notice you're not wearing an Apple Watch. <laughs> well, I can't. I just, you know, it, it, would, it would put me off brand you know, as, a, <laughs> as an entrepreneur with, with my, own, my own brand. I can't, I can't. We're, we are still, you know, we would love to get funded to develop some really kick-ass wearables, so I'm not going to wear an Apple if you, if you were going to look, if, if you were going to do wearables differently, how would you do it? Well, I would focus on what is the um, unique value proposition of each body part. So it's not just the wrist, it's, a, it's really, and it expands into fashion tech, and there are so many people doing amazing things, but everyone is so siloed, you know, no one's really looking at no. everything into, into like real behaviors. and. Um, I'm sure Apple is eventually going to probably beat me and everyone else to it. But it's uh, right now, they're, everyone's being a generalist. <clears throat> everyone's just doing extensions of the phone itself. Or putting like an NFC chip on a, on a bracelet. You know, which... But that's actually, to me, is that uh, is smarter than, than all the other features in uh, the Apple Watch. Because if you look at what is, what is a unique use of your wrist, right? If you lose your wallet, I would say that statistically, people lose their wallets and their credit cards more than they lose their wristwatches um, or bracelets. Like, I'm just going on a limb saying that. Yeah. So if that's truly the case, then it makes sense to have uh, payment and NFC functions on a watch, like, and, and not email. You know, it's just not. You need to look at the ergonomics and also the utility. So, if you can find that 
you know, a wristwatch and is something that is more secure, um, and you add the biometric element to it, then you have a very powerful single function product that you can then bring the cost down to then have a fashion item, something that's uh, that's impulse priced. Right. So that's the kind of thing that I that, but, that but, I'd like but to I do. kind of feel like you know this this it's it's so kind of banal that the future of wearables is either getting a notification that you've got another bloody message or you're paying for thing. something. I mean, there must be more to it. Than oh, that. there has to be more. But this is what people don't realize. The, I, I, I think a lot of the journalists don't realize that the problem is actually regulatory. Um, like, for example, the Apple Watch may very well have sensors that could give you useful medical information. Right, it requires FDA approval. Exactly, as it's not a medical device, they're hobbled and they can't do that. So the other side is you have Fitbit, which I honestly think will eventually be a failure because the information that they give is totally useless. It's just, it's noise. You don't, unless you're some kind of fitness fanatic um, and I think it's a very small percentage. I think people stop using these devices, uh, actually accessing and using the features three weeks in buying them. There's a lot of statistics about this. Um, so someone needs to really bridge this gap and say like, okay, yeah, right now, NFC and payments is something that is very powerful because it's a, it's, a, it's, a single, it's a single use. It's something we can talk about and you could, you could actually measure, right? But the other things that the wearables can be doing are kind of hobbled by the regulatory environment. Right. So I think that that's something that when people start, you know, but then it goes back to brand. As well, soon as as soon as something becomes medical, it's not sexy, and people are not going to want to wear it. It seems there seems to be a strange paradox, and a little bit what we were talking about before, which is that you've got a generation for whom asset ownership and buying things is becoming less attractive, the, the physicality, mm-hmm. and yet. Uh, they're willing to spend a very large amounts of their personal income on devices, technology. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it really that there's a the bro- a broader convergence, not just you know your phone and your music player, but essentially a convergence of experiences of which this is the remote control? Oh, exactly. I mean, to me, um, all of the uh, wearable devices that I've been developing for years, I have I just haven't had to brought anything to market. Have all been more as a remote control right you know and things that uh, you know you it, 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 the wearable should be something that helps you well actually even back to you know when when people would ask me like what is nuka like why are you not a watch company i would always point i don't know if you get to edit later out the, <laughs> the sirens i would always point people to the nuka festa which i wrote i have these uh, principles that guide all our design and one of those principles is interaction that if you buy an object it should create interactions between you and other people between you and your environment uh, between you and new thought processes between you and new emotions and uh, and that's a, a type of remote control you know so and that's right. what a, a, a wearable a successful wearable should really do it should it should create new types of interactions it's interesting so I, I know that the famous japanese book at the moment about the, the, the art of tidying up Mm-hmm. You know, which is you should only keep an object that, that brings you joy. Yeah. Uh, but for you, I guess, you should only introduce an object into your life if it increases the number of interactions. 
Well, that brings you joy. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, it certainly gives you meaning and context, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, when you, wear, when you wear one of my products, people always talk to you. They're like, oh, what is that? <laughs> you know, is that a smartwatch? Oh, it's not. What does it do? You know, so even just creating um, an opportunity for you to talk to strangers is actually really good for neuroplasticity. Like, for you to have to be brought... You know, you're walking down the street or you're in the subway. Talking to strangers is, is great for neuroplasticity. Explaining new things to people is neuroplasticity. Learning new things increases neuroplasticity. So these interactions, they do, they're, they're, they're good. And that's what we started talking about, the new generation. They're, they're, they're becoming cocooned into their devices and into their own, you know, cloud-based worlds. It's like hikiomori, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a, to bring people out of it is also, that's part of my ethos and, and my brand ethos. And I think that that's what a lot of the wearables are not doing. If you're just getting notifications, you're, you're still, it's the same paradigm. In you. And I believe, like you, you said too, they, should, they really should be bringing people more interactions and, and, and meaning. It should be creating meaning for people. Matthew, thank you for being my guest. It's been great having you on the show. Oh, it's over already. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. <laughs>